Hey, 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 everyone. <laughs> hey, hey, hey is back. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Welcome back to Drinking During Business Hours. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yes. Hey, Rich Chesler. Hi, Sarah Halstead. How you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Boy, we kind of have a lot to report. There's a lot going on. Kind it's, of a lot has happened. It was a short week, but chock full of events. It was a lot of events. Yeah. I'm recuperating. Yes. <laughs> Uh, do we want to start with, you know, you took me to the very first Deadhead-related show. I You're, did. You are a Deadhead, I just am. to catch everybody up. You're a notorious Deadhead. I am a notorious Deadhead, veteran of over um, 400 Grateful Dead shows. Yes, yes, very diehard. Yes. Diehard, like as diehard as they get. I, I right? will die hard with like, Jerry like I, playing I, in the background. No, no exaggeration, sometimes we'll be driving and like I'll be sleeping, you you're think I'm sleeping and you're, you know, rocking out to the Grateful Dead and I'll look over t- at you and you'll have tears streaming down your face. Is it? Can we shed a vulnerable moment? Yeah, here of a, music, in the light of music does that to me, uh, and you know, I yeah. miss Jerry. You miss Jerry, so I it do. meant a lot to you to take me to a Dead and Company. We went to go see Dead and Company at the Forum, and uh, John Mayer now is playing with them, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, you are John Mayer fan. I'm a huge John Mayer fan, so which, it was nice for me. Which means you got to see John Mayer, one of your favorites, do the music of one of my favorites, yeah. which was actually pretty groovy. It was amazing, but you made us do like the whole thing. Like we had to get there really early, park right. in the parking lot right. with all these deadheads yes. that were really... Uh, very, very sweet. Like you the know, nicest hip- people in the world. Hippies hippie. are great. What drugs did you give her before dead? Okay, show? we'll get good. to that. No, okay. but good. We'll get no. to that. That's so, our guest so, chiming okay. in. Okay, and, and this is my naivete, it. right? Because they're passing me chocolate bars and cookies. Well, I'm kind of hungry, and yeah, I, I mean, she I'm, didn't I'm pretty. Know what was and in the chocolate I can always bar. go for a chocolate bar. So right. yeah, but and and here's you know the irony: these these hippies, these bohemian wonderful souls, honestly, just emanated the most positive light, right? And giving, and they they look like they don't have anything right they don't have i mean they they're they were dressed you know like in rags practically it looked like they had owned one outfit Flowy, like one, it was like san francisco you know, in the late and, 60s and like very very minimal they're right. minimalist and i really respect that but here's the irony they're giving they're giving us everything that, they wouldn't let us pay they didn't want money right and you know they were just so uh, I, I can't say it enough, just the generosity that poured out of them and just loving um, uh, uh, harmony, right. just harmony. A lot of know? my values that I live by, you know, feeding hungry people, being generous, yes. opening my home, I learned those values in the Grateful Dead parking lot since I was a little kid. Well, they were incredible, made an incredible, I'll never forget it. Good, I will never forget we're going that again. <laughs> for as long as I live. But then the, the irony is then we went to a Paramount Studios event um, a SAG invitation. We went to an event at Paramount, and that was the total antithesis. Yes, they were savage and selfish. Everybody fighting, and fighting for the fighting food, for a bite, a morsel, <laughs> a tiny little quiche. I know it's it's so it was yeah so interesting I, dichotomy. I mean, as much as I love being in show business, trust me, I I would rather spend my time in the Grateful Dead parking lot. So, well, well, what are we drinking today? today? I'm oh, asking you. Oh yeah, what are oh, we drinking? Well, well, we're drinking a very special. Yes, uh, we very are. Very special bottle. I really love this particular vineyard, Shalone, uh, situated in Monterey, AVA. Right. Um, on top of a hill that gets really extreme sunlight and it's very cool climate. And as a result, these we're drinking Chardonnay. No, we're drinking Pinot or Blanc. Pinot Blanc, pardon me. Right. We're drinking Pinot An Blanc. Aged what a treat. Pinot Blanc. But uh, be aged because yes. be from this AVA, the white wines can be aged. Yeah. So oh, thanks for choosing this. It does. Cheers. And this is a 2014 Pinot Blanc. 2014 so when people Pinot say Blanc. that white wines don't age, you know, try aging a really good barrel, you know, fermented Chardonnay, something with a little extra tannin in it, and you'll see how yeah. wonderful they get. With lots of complexity. Speaking of complexity. I am so excited uh, about so today's excited. show. Me really, too. I am kvelling. And um, if you don't know what kvell means, it means that my mouth is filled with water. I'm so excited. Thank I, you, because I was going to look it up. You just drank wine. Mouth, <laughs> you have water in your mouth, now too. I have water it's phlegm, really, is what he meant to say. Okay. Fleming. Today's guest I have been wanting to have on the show for uh, almost a year. Uh, it's true, I can attest. He, he is a writer. He is a filmmaker. 
He, UCLA professor. Uh, UCLA <laughs> professor. His honors include the Peabody Award and the WGAW Award. But, He's a professor at right. UCLA Herb Albert School of Music. The Herb Albert School of Music, and, which is a big deal. And his his first biography, he has written the 1978 biography, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth. And this is that book. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today, Mr. Professor David Leaf. David Leaf. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you just try to be enthusiastic? You're so low key. I mean, <laughs> it's rich. I'm I the- am. I'm a music geek. You know, I mean, really am. I've got an album collection. Almost, I probably I have all my LPs that I ever bought since I was a little kid, and um, you know, I'm a trivia fanatic and. Uh, I've seen, I don't even know, I, I, the only, there's only a handful of people I haven't gotten to see in concert. The El, Beatles. The Beatles. Mm. But I've seen McCartney and uh, I saw Ringo Starr, so I've seen two of them individually. And I, I, I missed Elton John. Ooh, that was that's, a, that's, that's a big one. I, I saw him every year early in his career. I'd go every year, first at the Baltimore Civic Center, then at Madison Square Garden. Right. I, w- I was there the night John Lennon came out. Oh, sure. To, whatever to, gets you through the night. Whatever gets you through the night, the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And then uh, John introduced the third and final song by saying, we're going to do a song by an old estranged lover of mine called Paul. And they did, mm. I saw her standing there. Oh, how I was fun. screaming like a teenage girl. Right. <laughs> See, I when I saw the monkeys. I saw, I've seen them three times, but the first time I saw them was in 1984 at the Greek theater. And throughout the whole show, it was only the three of them because Mike Nesmith wasn't touring with them anymore. And the people were screaming like it was the Beatles. And it was the last show of the tour at the Greek theater here in LA. And Mike Nesmith came out for the last song and the place erupted. Did you? I never saw Bedlam like that at a show before. Well, the, the first time I saw McCartney in '76 at the LA Forum, oh, Wings Over America, Wings Tour. Over America, the third night, Ringo came out just with flowers, and we were shrieking. Right. Two of the Beatles are on stage together. together it right. was it was pretty exciting. It's very exciting stuff. So you're a big music person too. Did you not write a book about the Bee Gees as well? Yes, I he did, did write a book about my, the Bee Gees. one of my all time favorite bands. You have by very the way. good taste. I yeah, love, I the, love Bee the Bee Gees. I have old. BG albums like Red Velvet. That's the Odessa album. The Odessa, right. I I mean, I I am a crazy music collector. So this is very exciting for me to have you in studio today. How did you start writing biographies about music? Where did that come from? Um, I was going to be a sports writer. Mm. I was going to be the Edward R. Murrow of sports. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. The, the laughter is perfectly appropriate because the last thing in the world that the sports world wanted was somebody actually telling the truth of what was going on in sports. Right. Ah. Anyway, I when I was in college, I read this article in Rolling Stone magazine about this guy named Brian Wilson. And I became obsessed. Uh, fanatic would not be the wrong word to use. And I felt it was a calling. Like right. it was my mission to move to California, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend, and help him finish Smile, which was this legendary album that he had shelved back yes. in 1967. Mm. And I did. So um, there's a whole bunch of stories that led to every every piece of it is an hour story, um, which is why you need to to buy God Only Knows. Oh, yes. And have you back again? By the way, okay, yeah. sure. We have a copy in front of us. We're yes. gonna have you sign it. O- although you they won't, you won't. You'll have to give me a glass of wine the next time. I think this water. What is this water? I, I don't I know. I read. I read in water. the thing that you really like you to drink ask? water. Really? So. You didn't ask what he wanted. I did. Oh, he did. he, he was right. very clear. Because we have a lot. I'm driving. <laughs> I'm, I am driving. Right. Oh, that's good. Responsible. And I'm not sure. Are you guys old enough to be drinking? I am. She is not even close. We encourage everyone. So just so you know, I'm drinking dream business hours everyone is responsible here as loopy as it we may sound we're not we're, <laughs> we're not <laughs> yes we're responsible yeah, we, we sip a little Everybody. bit we use a device to take it out yes we core the whole bottle so anyway so anyway. so when i had finished the first edition of uh, the beach boys in the california myth the company that had done uh, that was putting that book out got the rights to do the BG's authorized biography and they were looking for a writer and and they sent the um, the manuscript of or the galleys of, of that of my book right. over over to 
RSO Records, mm-hmm. ah. and somebody there named Jay Levy read it and said, oh, this is just the right guy for the Bee Gees book. So mm-hmm. I found myself on a plane to Miami when they were making the follow-up album to uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack right. and was suddenly immersed in this remarkable world. Oh, my goodness. That was their big... Robert Stigwood, for people who don't know RSO, that's Robert Stigwood, the genius behind Saturday Night Fever, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, no, no, he, he'll take the blame for Sgt. Pepper's... Right, he doesn't ah. want to accept the, it. The worst movie uh, maybe ever made it, about music. Yes. And I remember, because I was working with the Bee Gees at the time, I was in the limo with them going to the premiere. Oh, no. Which was at the old Cinerama Dome. Right. And and I thought, you know, the last time I had this feeling in a car was when I was going to my grandfather's funeral. What? It, wh- why is everybody so depressed? They must have seen a screening. They they knew how bad it was. Yeah. They, la- later, when I made a documentary about them, they told me they tried to they begged off the film after the first week of shooting because they realized how bad it was. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, when it came out, I think I was in, I want to say I was probably in eighth grade, maybe ninth grade. And uh, we went to Westwood and we saw it like five times. But we didn't know what, you know, I mean, back then you didn't know. It was Peter Frampton and it's, you know. You knew. Yeah. Yeah. After seeing, well, I had seen Tommy the Who, you know. <laughs> which was great. Which was brilliant. I was into rock operas. You know, they were very, they were big back then. And uh, I have an older sister who actually is the person who turned me on to the Beach Boys. We, we can blame her. Yeah. The, the, uh, so Robert Stigwood was Brian Epstein's partner. Yes. When Brian Epstein was alive and managing, managing the, the Beatles. Beatles right. And what Robert Stigwood was always looking for his Beatles. He was looking for a group that he could make a big deal out of. And the Bee Gees were, were a group he met in 1967 through an, uh, an audition tape. He signed them almost instantly. Yeah. And the legend was that after they recorded their first single, it was during the time when the Beatles were making Sgt. Pepper, but it hadn't come out. And people were going, where are the Beatles? We haven't heard them in a while. So he supposedly sent white white label test pressings of the first single to New York, saying, "This is from a, an English group whose letter begins with the whose name begins with the letter B." Oh man! And they put it on the radio as the New York mining disaster, and it kind of this could be the Beatles. It yeah. almost could be, and that's how he broke them in America. They're that's fascinating. So brilliant. Is this part of what you teach? Uh, at UCLA, is yes. it music so, history? So my three courses, I'm in the music industry program at, at UCLA, and uh, I teach a course in the Beatles called The Real Beatles, R-E-E-L, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. in a 10-week quarter I compress the experience of what it was like to see the Beatles. I don't analyze the music. I don't right. talk about what my favorite songs are because none of that matters. Everyone has their favorite songs. Right. But how did they... How were they projected to us? Mm-hmm. How did we experience them? We experienced them visually. Yeah. On television and promotional films and movies, movies like The Hard Day's yeah. Night. And then a whole series of documentaries, a couple of which I've, I've made as well. And so I have the real Beatles is the curricula, but then I have people who worked with the Beatles come into class. So they hear the, 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 what the R-E-A-L Beatles is like. Right. So that's, that's a great class. Then I have another one called Songwriters on Songwriting, mm. the longest subtitle in history. Killer, <laughs> ki- ki- killer hooks uh, and songs, um, killer hooks, essential songs and songwriters of the Rocky era, dot, 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 and those they've influenced. Really? And it's it's like a master class every week. Mm. I've had Burt Backrack, Randy Newman, Jimmy Webb, Ooh. Mike Stoller, uh, Man in Wild. By the way, what a fantastic... Uh, piece Jimmy Webb wrote for your book. He did. In the beginning. Now, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I did not get to read the entire book. I I looked for it. We went to Barnes & Noble last weekend. It wasn't there. I had to buy it off of Amazon. It took, you know, a couple of days to get there. But the minute I opened it, I was glued to it. Thank you. And so instead of just reading from the beginning on, I read the opening stuff. I read uh, the Jimmy Webb stuff. I read the forward then I started skipping through reading a chapter here and a chapter there because I really wanted to get the flavor of the book. Well, the thing that I love about the beginning of the book, because what I did was I took the old 1978 book and I bookended it with massive updates. Right. The, the update is actually more than half the length of the original book. The mm. book opens with what I called the overture from Sir Paul McCartney. Right. 
goodness, what an overture. It's really good. It's really good. That's then nice then Brian's wife, Melinda Wilson, writes an essay about, yes. about me. And then we get a, an essay from Sir Barry Gibb. Mm. Um, because Barry worships Brian. In, in fact, um, one of the great stories of my, my life was when I was in Miami to write their book, uh, I found myself alone in the recording studio one night, just the engineers and Barry, I was sitting on a couch and, and there's nothing between, there's just the glass between me and the studio and he lowers the lights and he's recording a new song, the, vo- the lead vocal for a new song. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, is this as good as I think it is? Mm-hmm. A song called Too Much Heaven. Oh, wow. Which is one of the greatest yes, songs. it is. One of my very favorite uh, songs. A, a year later, I was at the United Nations when they donated it to UNICEF. Mm. And then flash, uh, flash forward to 1997, uh, the Bee Gees asked me to have Brian induct them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, he's, an and, he, and he was thrilled to, which is unusual for him because giving speeches is, is hardly his favorite thing. <laughs> but I was in a hotel room in Cleveland with Barry and Brian, with Barry teaching Brian Too Much Heaven, which is the song he sang that night. On piano? Uh, and he just sang it just with, sang. Was with a band. Right. And I, I remember we were sitting at the table next to Crosby, Stills, and Nash who were being inducted that night. And when Brian hit the high note in the, in the, in the bridge, we hear this voice go, oh, my God. And it was David Crosby. Right. And he, he knew about singing. Yes. God rest his he soul. He really did. Yes, yeah. yes. He was an incredible guy, David Crosby. I actually, a friend of mine's father when we were growing up was a big-time music agent. And he represented Diana Ross and the Supremes and then Diana Ross Solo. He represented Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And so we used to go to go see CSN when they were playing in town. And then we'd go backstage. And I spent about two hours in David Crosby's dressing room one night after a show. And all these people coming and going. And uh, we had some pretty interesting conversations with David Crosby. And I was about 17, but I already was a bit of an iconoclast. Oh, so you guys fit together very well. So we well. fit together pretty well, yeah. Yeah, I, had, I actually had David Crosby as a guest in my songwriting class at UCLA as well. Fantastic. Um, so let's, so I, I mentioned the Beatles class, the songwriting class. Right. Then I also teach a course called Docs That Rock, Docs That Matter about music documentaries. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm teaching the, the students music history of the Rocky era in three different ways. And with the documentary class, because uh, that's – where I've been most successful as a filmmaker, I show them a couple of my films, but I also have filmmakers like R.J. Cutler and others come in and, and talk about their films. Wow, we have a documentary you need to see. And I am going to talk to the filmmaker. It hasn't been sold yet, but I'm going to talk to the filmmaker about getting you a link so you can watch it. You deserve this. Uh, my partner on a project I'm working on right now, his name is Danny Gold. And he is a brilliant documentarian, and he recently made a film about Charles Fox. Okay. Called Killing Me Softly with His Songs. And it Nobody is. can agree about the story of how that song was inspired, by the way. Right. Mm. But, but really? But, yeah, supposedly, one story is, I think it was Lori Lieberman is sitting with, with Gimbal and Fox mm-hmm. at a Don McLean concert. And she says something like, God, he's killing me softly with his song. Charlie tells the story in the documentary of how that song came to be. And um, everything's Rashomon with songwriters. Yeah. Yes, of course. Or the world. Of course, yes. But it's a brilliant documentary. It's charming, too. It's charming and wonderful. Heartbreaking, you'll cry, laugh. I will, for sure. I would love for you to see it. I've seen it twice. And I, yeah. I've. I'm going to see it a handful more. <laughs> it's pretty I miraculous. Believe, but but, but these are so great classes. How do I get to take them? <laughs> um, well, you need to. You guys need to quickly have offspring. Okay. Who then get into UCLA, and then you can sit in the back when they when they register for the I class. I can't just monitor. Uh, actually, actually, you can. You 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 could sit in the back if if you want to pay we, for UCLA parking. We can't fall into the back to school for adults. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the songwriting class is available online in the summer. Right. Oh, so so anybody can take it in the oh. world. It's just not. It's a little expensive. Yeah, you know, the okay. rockumentary okay. class sounds well, really you're, you're interesting worth, to me. You're it's worth great. every penny, I'm sure. So I'm really curious about um, the friendships, h- how that evolved. You know, you be, because I understand Bee Gees. You know, with you being authorized to write the first biography of the Bee Gees, a huge, huge honor, and 
from what you explained, that kind of sounded like a classic work begets work because you had just, you know, finished this tremendous success of, of the, of the Beach Boys. But, you know, that wasn't the case in the beginning. You had to, how did you, how were you able to make this happen with your first publication? I started writing for my uh, high school newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, one Great. day I was sitting in homeroom complaining about an article in the sports section of the high school newspaper. And the guy in front of me turns around and says, you think you can do better? And I said, I know I can do better. He, right. says, he says, well, that's my article. He says, come up to the, to the newspaper office and we'll see if you can do better. <laughs> and with that, I got, uh, I became sports editor. And with that came, came a job at the town newspaper, thirty-two fifty a week I was making. Wow. When I was in high school, which was that's big, great kid. Big money. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I just kept writing for school newspapers, radio stations, and again, I was gonna be a sports writer until I heard an album called Surf's Up by the Beach Boys. Oh sure. And the last two songs on that album are Till I Die and Surf's Up. Till I Die is one of the saddest songs mm-hmm. I've ever heard. And Surf's Up was the centerpiece from the Smile album, it had been on a Leonard Bernstein television special back in 67 when he was sort of anointing Brian as this important composer, but the album never came out. And I was like, wait a second, this is maybe better than the article says it is, and he can still do it. Right. I've mm-hmm. got to go out there and help. It, it, it oh. sounds crazy. No, that was your calling. It, it was. It pull- when something pulls at you, there's you don't question it you kind of go with it and that's where a lot of people make their mistake in life is that they become something that wasn't what they wanted to do and they say well you know i always felt compelled to do this and so i came out here and i I arrived on a saturday night and monday morning i went to the unemployment office in santa monica to (laughs) to transfer my claim from from new york to, to california And I walked out of the unemployment office, crossed Broadway on 5th Street going north, and walking towards me was Dennis Wilson, Brian's younger brother. The universe does not not mess around. And I've never been shy. And I walked up to him and said, hi, Dennis. My name is David Leaf. I just moved to California to write a book about your brother. I can still hear the echo of his laugh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> because you're really young at this point you I'm, 20, know, I'm 23 but yeah. but he knew his brother and it was like who's, how's anybody gonna write a book about this guy who won't talk to anybody right. and um three years almost to the date of that meeting the the first edition of the book was in store and that was 78 that was 75 when i met dennis on the street right now flash forward about eight months i'm at the ymca on Sawtell Boulevard in West L.A., shooting baskets with a friend of mine from college. And onto the court walked two guys. One of them is a very tall guy named Stan Love, who had just retired from his NBA career. His son, Kevin Love, is an NBA superstar. Sure, we know Kevin Love. His brother, Mike Love, is the lead singer of the Beach Boys. Right. With Stan Love is Brian Wilson. Universe does not mess around. And he said, you guys want to play two-on-two? And... <laughs> the whole time we were playing, I'm thinking, I can't wait to tell my friends How about this. Oh, wow. I mean, he's so iconic, you know. It's people describe him in the book as being another Tchaikovsky or you know, there that he's a, He he thinks of himself as a Bach. A, I would too, as a as a big fan of Bach. One of my favorite compositions is Concerto for Two Violins in D minor by Bach. And I could see that in terms of the the style of his writing and the complexity and depth of his music compared to Bach as opposed to like... And someone mentioned Mahler. In yes, I think Gustavo Dudamel. Dudamel, com- com- who com- we recently went in to see, actually. We love Dudamel. We love Dudamel. Wow, what a huge compliment coming from Dudamel. He yes. said, yeah, that listening to Brian Wilson is like listening to Gustav Mahler. That's a real compliment. So, so everyone in music knows how great he is. Right. And I just wanted to tell his story. I wanted to grab the world by the collar and say, do you understand how important this guy is? Why isn't he being treated better? Why isn't he being regarded with the acclaim that he should be? Right. He was equally, Brian Wilson as a composer and a songwriter is equally as important as Lennon McCartney. 
if well, not more. Well, I interviewed Paul McCartney in 1990 for the CD liner notes for Pet Sounds, oh. one of Brian's classic records. By the way, Goodness. one of my, that two minute and 43 second composition, I think is the time on that. It, I can't, I played it for you before. It, it, it from the inside, it is gripping. I, I think it's a perfectly written song. Absolutely perfect. What what Brian did, so the way the same way Dylan made it okay to say something in a pop song, Brian made it okay to feel something oh. in popular music. And I was feeling it. And there's a small cult of us who were crazy about it, but for the most part, the Beach Boys were fun in the sun and girls on the beach and fast cars. None of that I like those songs, but that isn't what was driving me. Right. What was driving me was what George Martin would say to me later, Sir George Sir Martin, George excuse Martin. Me, he said to me, Sergeant Pepper was our attempt to equal pet sounds. I read that in the book. Yeah. And, and he's, he said, we didn't. I remember talking to him about Brian. He thought Brian was the composer, arranger, producer. And when I said, well, no, he, he also, that's his high voice. And, mm. and, and Sir George goes, that's not fair. <laughs> it really, when it when the jo so octave talented. jumps up, it's such a that song is everything from delightful to compelling to um, a little haunting. To it, it covers such a spectrum of emotions in such a very short period of time, but the melody, in my opinion, is just. It, 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 it is a perfectly written song, you he, know? As, as a composer, he really didn't write songs that weren't perfectly written. He had an ability in a minute and 50 to a minute. I mean, he just could do it very in a very short period of time. A song like When I Grow Up to Be a Man or Please song. Let Me Wonder, God yeah. Only Knows. I mean, he just, he just had an, a feeling... And he would sit at the piano. He, he described, he said, I would sit at the piano and play feels. And, and, mm. and slowly a melody would come to me. He said later on, he says, it was as if God was moving my fingers on the piano. Mm. It's, a very it's, it's, it's a very spiritual thing for him, which is the exact opposite of the Beach Boys image. Right. So, it's, so it's, it became difficult to explain to people what I was talking about. So I've tried over and over again through the years. You know, people talk about um, Sgt. Pepper's being the greatest album ever made. It's people have said, but I've heard in interviews, various musicians and composers and people say, had Pet Sounds come out first? Well, Pet Sounds did come out the year before Sgt. Pepper. It did? Yeah. It was Smile that- Oh, Smile, so, right. Smile, that Smile, Smile might have been considered the greatest album ever made. <sighs> We could play woulda, shoulda, coulda right. all day long. I know. What was spectacular was that in 2004, after Smile had sat on the shelf for 37 years, Brian went to London and played it live. Yeah. He completed it on stage in front of 3,000 rabid fans. He played a, a week's uh, worth of shows at, at Royal Festival Hall, and it was... It was as if you went to the to the Vatican for Easter Sunday Mass every night. Paul McCartney was there. Sir George Martin was there. Jeff Beck was there. I mean, it was you know every night British royal music royalty came out to see what was going on, and everybody had their mind blown because it's it's such a special piece of yeah. music. So the guy writes Pet Sounds, comes out in '66, then he. Writes, composes, arranges, and produces good vibrations, and everybody's going. Well, what's coming next? Right. And smile was going to be it. It was as he described it, uh, going to be a teenage symphony to God. That was that was what was in his head, and it was going to be written in a modular style, the way good vibrations sure. have been done. And he just stopped. There's a lot of reasons why he stopped. In, in a film I made called Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson and the Story of Smile. He gives the four reasons, and it's it's very sad that that he did not have the full support of the world he was he mm. was living in. Yeah. The record company, the group. He just he didn't have what the Beatles had. The Beatles had unanimity of purpose. They weren't afraid 
to evolve, to grow, to change. John Lennon was asked after Revolver came out, aren't you afraid you're going to lose some of your older fans? And he said, well, we'll make some new fans. Right. The Beach Boys were scared that they were going to lose their, their, their fans. They were very niche. You know, the Beach Boys. I, by the way, Good Vibrations was my first Beach Boys album. And I remember when I heard it, and I might have been nine or ten. I'd already been playing the drums for three and a half years, but I was listening to Chick Corea, and I was listening. My drum teacher was turning me on to a lot of jazz, you know, Coltrane and uh, Modern Jazz Quartet. And when I heard the Beach Boys, it was downstairs in our basement on Long Island, and we had one of those old record players, like the lid would go up and you'd put... I played the whole side... And I picked the needle up and put it right back to the beginning and played it again. Then I flipped it and I listened to the second and I just, I listened to the whole album and I was just absolutely floored by that music that I had to start playing drums to it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the, the British would use the word gobsmacked. I that's, was gobsmacked. That's how they responded. <laughs> yes, that's it. it and, well, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, but why do you think that Brian Wilson needed this nudge? For acclaim, what, what, why was he kind of this hidden uh, jewel? You know, musicians knew the the enormity of his greatness, but why is it because he's introverted? Is it because he's shy? What was it at that time that that drove you to want to help him? Why, why was he in this position to begin with? Well, he grew up in he grew up in a, fo- in, a in a family with an abusive father. Yeah. Okay. So he w- he was damaged. Early on, mm. the the sad irony of that is, if he hadn't had such a painful life, he would not have infused the music with the depth of beauty it had. Right. So I don't think great artists are, are put here to be happy, mm-hmm. with the exception of Sir Paul McCartney, right. who, yeah. who who and, and they were born two days apart, same year, two days apart, and Paul is 180 degrees the opposite. He loves Brian and, and vice versa. They really love each other, but just very different creatures in large part because of the families they came from. Right. And and unfortunately uh, for Brian, there was nobody in his world uh, who that he was related to who had any vision of what what could come. And and so he put this music on the shelf. He he essentially sacrificed himself on the altar of Smile to save the Beach Boys. He, he, he yeah. felt that if he finished it and released it, it, would, it might destroy the group. Goodness, that's a heavy weight. Yeah. How long did it take you to complete the biography? The first book was written um, in about seven or eight months. Oh, my. Not long at all, considering, no. I mean, this is a... It's it's a big read. I'm it, the, well, this impressed. Is, this is the uh, this is the newer edition that re- has re- like about that much. Well, you know, it's it's. I had to do a lot of research. Well, I, be, between the time I'd become obsessed with Brian in the fall of '71, and the time I got the book contract in the summer of '77, um, I had collected everything there was. Okay. In magazines, music related. I, and, and start and I started a thing called Pet Sounds, a fanzine, mm-hmm. which there weren't a lot of back in those days. And it caught the attention of the publicist at Warner Brothers Records. And he said, can I get a thousand copies of these? And I said, sure. He says, he offered me $250, which was great. Okay. <laughs> and he sent, cents a copy. and he sent them to everybody on his mailing list. And one of the people on his mailing list was a, was a, writer at the Village Voice in New York, a guy named Guy Trebay. And he had never seen anything like this. Hmm. So he did an interview with me about Pet Sounds, which he titled Heavy Petting. Oh. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, this publisher in New York saw the article and they were looking for somebody to work on a Beach Boys book. And so I, I liken all of this to if you set up 10,000 dominoes and you had to knock them over. If you pull out any one of the dominoes, wow. none of this stuff would have happened. Unbelievable. Yeah, the timing, yeah. really. Um, so this was a, so you went the traditional publishing route because of uh, th- this, that interview with the Village Voice linked to it, it, a it, publishing this, the, deal? The, the, 
the book packager who hired me, they hired me to do research on a book that was going to be called Sand Tracks, Growing Up with the Beach Boys. They had had a success the year before with a book on growing up with the Beatles. It was going to be written by a, a gentleman, I think his name is Ron Coslow, and I was going to do research for the book. And then just before we got started, he sold a TV miniseries. Oh. And he said to them, uh, I'm not going to have time to write the book. Oh, wow. And I, and I wrote them an impassioned two-and-a-half-page letter <laughs> saying, why don't we change the point of view of the book instead of it being about somebody who grew up in California with the Beach Boys music as their soundtrack, somebody who moved to California because, because of the Beach Boys. Yeah. That's an easy pivot. And, sure. and, it went, and they they were happy to do it. I, in, in my letter, I think I called it the Beach Boys and the California Myth or In Search of the Beach Boys or something like that. And when I turned in the manuscript... It was just a straightforward biography of Brian Wilson. And they mm. said, well, where's the stuff about the, the California myth? I said, oh, I, you know, <laughs> so I, like, I, I kind of had to do that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that book came out and it was, a, it was a modest success. I did an updated edition in 85, mm -hmm. which was a similarly modest success. And it just sat there for well over 35 years. I had no intention of doing anything with it. It's been out of print forever. It was at one point it was going for five hundred dollars on the collector's market. Really, yeah. mm. and at one of Brian's concerts, a, a young man, maybe he was twenty-one or twenty-two, came over to me and says, "Mr. Leaf, I just found a copy of your book on the internet for five hundred dollars." He was excited, and I said, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Right, <laughs> and it kind of like planted the seed. Maybe, maybe mm, I ought to get this book time out there to get it out there again. Yeah. So there was a confluence of events: Brian's 80th birthday, mm -hmm. my 70th birthday. The 60th anniversary of the Beach Boys signing with Capitol Records. That was 1962, correct? 62. So in, in 2021, I was talking to, to Brian's wife, and I said, there's nothing I can give him for his birthday. Why don't I do an updated edition of the book? And she said, sounds great. And um, that's when I asked her if she would write <laughs> a little essay it's, for it's it. It's beautiful. Her when we first met David Leaf, uh, I mean, that it was just, be, she did a wonderful job. We, uh, we had a wonderful, uh, we had a wonderful relationship with, with Brian and she and my late wife and I, it was like date, we were double dating right. and they were like a teenage couple in love. Oh, that's very sweet. And Brian is the, is the sweetest person you could ever meet. He does not have a mean bone in his body. Mm. doesn't have an ironic bone in his body. He is, he is as sincere as could be. He, he just has this gift. And he loved sharing it with the world, loved sharing it with the world. Well, and yeah. thanks to you and your help, too. Yeah. You know, for getting the story out there so articulately. Thank you. Yeah, so so the first book I did a lot of research on in terms of writing, uh, doing interviews with everyone I could find to talk to me, including his mother and his brother Dennis and his brother Carl and in fact, when the book came out, Dennis called me, Dennis Wilson calls me late one night, going, I'll do a bad imitation of his voice, David, who told you this? And he's, he reads something from the book because it was an anonymous quote. And I said, well, Dennis, as a journalist, ordinarily I wouldn't tell you, you know, where the quote came from, but it was your mother. <laughs> and, and, he, and, he, and he says, why'd you listen to her? And then he realized the absurdity of what he said, and he burst into laughter. That's very funny. Uh, so he, he was, he was a second to Brian as the most talented guy in the group. And I love the story that you tell in the book that when their parents went away to Mexico and left them food money, they had just started playing around with some stuff. They took the food money, went to the music store, bought a bunch of instruments, and Dennis just kind of decided, all right, well, I'll just I'll play the drums. Well, there was not he. The, the, Carl was the only musician for really when they started. I mean, Brian was, of course, he played the piano and he eventually took over bass guitar. But Dennis didn't play anything. In right. fact, in the family, when they would have family sings, it would be Brian and Carl and not Dennis. Dennis mm -hmm. Dennis was busy surfing, right? love it, and chasing girls, right? Love it, and. He's the one who came home one day and said, Brian, all the kids at school know you write songs. Why don't you write a song about surfing? And surfing was the song that he wrote, right? First, their first hit. Yeah. And really kind of ended up being their cosmetic image. Well, for uh, unfortunately, yes. Yes. You know, Just cosmetically. When, right? I, when I moved to California in 1977, I was 12 years old. 
And I was very excited about coming out here because all I wanted to do was learn how to skateboard and surf. Sure. And that was a very How'd big, that go? Great. I surfed for years and I wound up skating in skateboard parks and Good. it was a very big deal for me. But when the Sony Walkman came out, all I listened to when we would go surfing and I had my Walkman at the beach was the Beach Boys. That was it. It's a perfect soundtrack to summer. Yeah, it I mean, really, no really question is. Endless summer, I mean, you know, it, it has a meaning to it. It, it does, and, and as, as somebody said in a documentary, you know, if you lived in the middle of the country, you didn't have a beach. Right. The Beach Boys were our beach. They were our ocean. Yeah. And what propelled the filmmaking? How did, how did that come about? Uh, I started working um, in television as a production assistant. Gopher is mm-hmm. they, yeah, they pretty much go for, go for lunch, <laughs> go, for this, go, go for that. And, and one day the producer said to me, Hey kid, come on. We're going over to rehearsal. I was so naive. I didn't know they rehearsed television shows, <laughs> but it was a show called Sinatra and friends. Mm. Uh, Frank Sinatra being the, right. the, the, the first part of that name. So we drive in his 450 Mercedes onto the Burbank studios, lot park and his special producer's, space walk into a giant sound stage there's nothing in there except in the far corner is the nelson riddle orchestra nelson riddle standing with his baton and standing next to him is frank sinatra and we pulled two folding chairs and sat down maybe 15 feet away and the producer's first name is paul and he goes hey mr s how's it going he goes good paul how about you terrific he says you're ready for us to run the show paul key says yes Sinatra cues Nelson Riddle, downbeat, I've got you under my skin. Mm. And within 30 to 45 seconds, the following thoughts go through my head. One, when I was a kid, I played trumpet, but I sure don't play like those guys. Right. (laughs) Two, I sing. I love to sing. I even had a group, David Leaf and the Twigs. (laughs) Amazing. Do you have footage? No, Oh, but but I sure I don't sing like that see, guy. I would love to see that. Third, I'm thinking, this may be the coolest place in the universe at this moment. I'm getting a private concert from Frank Sinatra and the Nelson Riddle Orchestra. And, the Nelson, and and then the fourth thought is, I want to spend my life in this room. What can I do to earn a place here? Uh, right, full time. And during the course of production, my job is to be at the producer's side. For that moment when he says, hey, kid, you know those shoes at the bottom of my closet? I want to wear them tomorrow. Would you get them shined? That's that's the yeah, gopher's that's job. the PA's job. But most of the time, I was just by his side during pre-production, at rehearsal, during, during the show itself, hearing how he talked to Sinatra. And when it was finished and, and it was edited, I thought to myself, he was like a mu- museum curator. He had this great piece of art, and he'd put a frame around it to present to the world. And I thought, I can do that. Mm. Now, I, where that confidence came from, I, I, I can't explain to you. I, I, I often say, you know, when, when I was five years old, my parents told me I was special and I believed them. You know, it's well, like, so I, I thought I was, I was great parenting. That's good parenting. <laughs> I don't think they meant it. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, oh, I'm sorry. No, honey. go ahead. But I, I am seeing some parallels between you and Brian Wilson, where you just were born with this gift, you know, of your writing and, and through, um, kismet, uh, that fell into these situations where you could put those, that gift into play. My father was a great storyteller. My mother was an amazing joke teller. Oh. Um, God, some of the jokes, were, they were not PG. They, they, <laughs> well, that's the most, most great comedy isn't. But so I, when I moved out here, yes, I wanted to write the book. I also wanted to write movies. I also right. wanted to write sitcoms and, and did a little of everything. But Brian was always the story that I came back to in one in one shape or form, or telling stories about other great artists like John Lennon or James Brown or, or the Bee Gees or right. Harry I, Nilsson. I have to say, I, I absolutely understand that, like very clearly. I am in the process of developing a project right now about somebody. I'm not allowed to say, I certainly can't say it on the mic, but um, 
And it's been pulling at me for, I've been a stand-up for 37 years, so this has been pulling at me for probably 35 years. And I found myself- You're not listening, are you? (laughs) 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 And I I found myself in a situation uh, about six months ago where I was having lunch with a a filmmaker and producer and we were talking about stuff and he asked me if I had anything and I pitched this idea to him and next thing you know, six months later we are, yeah, but it's, you know, congratulations. Thank you. But it's just one of those things, you know, when something calls at you, yes, you know, you just, again, put it into the universe and and you put it out there and well, you have to, you have to be willing to accept enormous rejection. Oh yeah, you know that's you. You know that as, as, as stand-up comedians, you're and working on new oh, material. Yes, you're 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 going for auditions, and mm-hmm. the answer is usually a lot of rejection. Thank you, right? Rejection you know, every day, um, multiple times a day. Had, <laughs> you're perfect, but your hair color's wrong. <laughs> I had an attorney who said the next best answer to yes is no, right? Because we would often hear that's really interesting. We'll get back to you, and then you know we would be ghosted. Um, so it's it's a it's the willingness to accept rejection and keep plowing forward with your yes. ideas that 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 separates us from the people who give up i don't see it as rejection to be honest with you and i've never said this out loud before but i always have felt and my philosophy about it has always been that when somebody tells me no they're pushing me closer to the person who's going to say yes oh i like that I don't agree, but I don't. It's, <laughs> it's the only way I've That's ever been able to look at. Philosophy. Well, it's like because it's like the, it's like the Seinfeld joke. He says uh, he says the only good part of the business are meetings. Mm-hmm. Oh, that wasn't that a good meeting? Yes, that, that was, was a very good, good meeting. meeting. You know, we, we have lots of good meetings, right? But getting somebody to write a check is is a, is a very challenging it's a different, thing. Right, that's a whole other ball of wax. I know. Now, did you have any correlation to the Bee Gees documentary? By any chance? Yes. Okay, I thought so. You so, were so I worked on. I, I made a Bee Gees documentary uh, back in two thousand. Okay. Called "This Is Where I Came In," and then a few years ago there was there was a new one made called "How Can You Mend a Broken Heart," that I was a, a consultant on. Excellent. And the interviews that we had shot back in two thousand of the three brothers, because Robin and Morris had passed away since then, mm. and. Right. and and they used those interviews in a good third or so of this most recent documentary because it was the last time they all were th- shot well and they're great storytellers. I cried like a baby. I'm more than mildly obsessed with the documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? I want to see yours, but it's not surprising that you worked on this as well, um, the latest. And I think what re- I lived in Miami for 12 years. They were my neighbor, sort of. And I loved, I was really touched with the story about jive talking. Oh, and, and the bridge. driving over the bridge. I drove over that bridge several times a day, <laughs> and I know exactly the sound it made. So why you know? didn't you write this song? Oh, yeah, what's the matter isn't with that, you? I was so inspired that that's what it takes. You just have to write it down when it comes to you and just yeah. kind of nibble away at it. And well, look at it, that, jive when talking. Comes, when it comes to songwriters... You have to write a lot of bad songs before you write a great one. And that's every John John and Paul did that. They sure. wrote they wrote a hundred or more songs before they wrote anything that was worthy of, of being recorded and released. Mm. So it's it's again, it's it's they knew that that's what they were meant to be and they were gonna keep doing it. And they were gonna keep doing it. If you watch interviews with them from nineteen sixty three, well how long do you the, the question was always when will the bubble burst? Mm. And, well, we always think we can write songs and we're going to be like Rodgers and Hammerstein or something right. like that. They knew they could write songs. And, you know, nobody's written more great songs uh, than, than Lennon McCartney. Yeah, their catalog is insane. And they, I was watching Paul in an interview once and he was saying there were days that him and John would get together. They would write three, four, five songs in an afternoon. I, th- I think one of them once said, "You you want to write a Rolls Royce today?" It was one of the questions. Right. <laughs> you know, the question, but I interviewed for the for my my Beatles class, Peter Asher, who was um, you know a big part of the Beatles world, part of Peter and Gordon, eventually a great producer and manager in his own right. He Paul lived in the Asher family home from sixty three to about sixty seven, and John and Paul would write in the basement room and 
one day they came out and said, you want to hear our new song? And it was, I want to hold your hand. So he was the first person to ever hear that. So amazing. It it pains me that we have to rap because there's no way that you can interview David Leaf in an hour. Would you you come back? This is just amazing. Well, the the thing is, you promised me wine. We will bring wine. Next time we'll have real wine. We only have 900 bottles. I know, we literally have 900 bottles And maybe some chocolate bars. Hey. And if you bring your fiancé, in fact, if you want to bring your fiancé who likes Cabernet, We'll bring oh, some really beautiful wine. And muscle we'll, tough. Yes. But will, will you come back again? Because yes. we're not even close. We haven't even gotten Talk into about the a hard close, of the book putting yet. Putting you on the spot. The, the, book is, the book is actually pretty simple. It's the story of, of one of the great geniuses in the, really in the history is. of music. And, and you can listen to Brian Wilson's story in music. You can go to Spotify and he, hear him tell it in song. But if That's you want to know about him, you want to read this book. This read, is really everyone, cool. I'm glued read, to it, I'm telling you. Read this book, buy this book, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys and the California Myth by David Leaf. And it's on Amazon, just so you know. Look it up. Look up on, it uh, is God, on Amazon. God only knows. Google God only knows in Brian Wilson. And it's beautiful, and the, and and the cover is beautiful. Stores. And where can people find you online if they want to look up David Leaf? I know they can Google you, but you have a website. Uh, there's or, a website. WWLeafProd.com. LeafProd.com. And are you on any of the socials? Facebook and Instagram. At David Leaf? Um, no, it's just my name. Okay, David very good. Okay, I, pay, I pay no attention to Instagram. And I don't like it. As well. always, we have to throw we a few a thank yous out today. Thank you, Shalone. Thank you, Shalone Vineyards, for this beautiful Bully Food and Wine blog. Society. Thank you to Pretty Easy um, Podcast. Pretty Easy Podcast for producing and making sure we have a good product. Thank you for to Coravin and Peter Johnson thank for giving you Peter us. Peter Johnson and uh, <laughs> all of our most friends. importantly, we th- haven't we the haven't thanked the people in the in the parking lot at the, at the dead the, shows I, for the, the, for giving us w- the chemicals we needed to enjoy the show. Oh yeah, thank, uh, thank you to the you. people who gave us the chocolate Bohemian, bars at the dead show. Lovely people. And thank you, David. You, I will Leaf. never forget really, you, Bohos. Thank so you, David Lee. And we will we will <laughs> talk you to you next time. Me. Thank you for tuning in to Drinking During, During Business, Business Hours. hours.